The Timeless Podcast Company present this podcast. In immersive sound design. Welcome to the Breaking Anonymity Podcast. My name is MC Search, and I'll be soon joined by my co-host Kyle Eustace. Each week we sit down with musicians, celebrities, and influencers and have real conversations as they share their stories of addiction and recovery. Before we bring on our legendary guest, DMC of the rap group Run DMC, thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself and Kyle. My name is Michael and I am an addict. My recovery date is 11-11-11. While I've had success as a recording artist, an entrepreneur, and as an entertainer, I'm most proud of the work that I have done in my recovery and discovering an authentic version of myself through the help of a 12-step program. My partner, Kyle Eustace, is a veteran music journalist writing for Hip Hop DX and Thrasher Magazine, to name a few. She has 14 years of recovery. Our goal is that our show can bring inspiration and hope to show other people out there that there is a program that can work for their addiction. Please excuse the sound quality as this was recorded during the pandemic, which presented its own set of audio challenges. Now introduce Kyle Eustace to bring on our guest, the legendary DMC. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I don't know, Serge, I feel like our next guest doesn't even need an introduction. He's just that prolific. <laughs> but just in Facts. case... You know, but just in case, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Daryl DMC McDaniels of the multi-platinum hip-hop group Run DMC. As one of the flag ar- flagship artists on Def Jam recordings, Run DMC has sold over 15 million albums in the United States alone and is the second hip-hop group ever to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But aside from the monumental success he's had in music, DMC has been brutally honest about his struggles with mental health and addiction. In fact, he wrote a book on it, 2017. 10 ways not to commit suicide so everybody i'd like to welcome dmc i would like to just make one correction it was profile records not def jam records yes profile oh my records. god wait we gotta do that again yes everybody <laughs> thought we was on def jam i, I always thought that because a rush because yes. it was not a rush yep. exactly That's, oh, oh, russell's gonna kill me yeah hold on <laughs> hold on <laughs> Damn it. We're doing that over. I'm Take sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I can't. Great. I can't the beautiful as, thing about editing. It's just a wonderful, a, yeah, wonderful a mechanical hip, tool. As a hip hop journalist, you cannot get that you gotta wrong. Gotta get it right. Yeah, gotta exactly. get it right. So, profile record. Yes. yes. Was that? Profile records. Independent. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And I knew that too. Special Lance, Dr. Jeff, mm-hmm. Mr. Hyde. That's what I get for. Teachers. Yeah. yeah that's that's like what I did. You're forgetting the real. You're forgetting the really the, the pumpkin and the all stars, fresh oh, three MCs. Yeah, the fresh yeah, I went to school with Jay Cool from the first. Get out of here, really? <laughs> went to, we went to high school. Me and Dana Dane too. We went, all went to music and art high school. 
Wow. All right. So anyway. All right. Let's three. do that part again where you you say, Kyle, you want to introduce, and I'll do the whole shebang. I'm Kyle, sorry, Daryl. No problem. Okay. Kyle, you want it? Kyle, you want to introduce our special guest? I don't know, Serge. I feel like our next guest doesn't need an introduction. He's just that prolific. Fact. Uh, but just in case, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Daryl DMC McDaniels of the multi-platinum hip-hop group Run DMC as one of the flagship artists on Profile Records. Run DMC has sold over 15 million albums in the U.S. alone and is the second hip-hop group ever to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But aside from the monumental success he's had on music, DMC has been brutally honest about his struggles with mental health and addiction. In fact, he wrote a book on it, 2017's 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide. So everybody, I'd like to welcome DMC! In the place to be! Uh, what's and, up? Another, what's and, he that, went, and he went to St. John's University. <laughs> uh, I was there for two semesters. And since kindergarten, he acquired the knowledge. And after grade, I just <laughs> went to college. college. Went straight. <laughs> Yo, he's, and he's light-skinned. Living Queens. Loves eating chicken and collard greens. Yes, I'm sorry, DMC. Do you no think problem. I, and I okay. love you, Daryl. No, no problem. We love you, too. I love you, too. <laughs> so, well, thank you for having me here. Um, it's incredible that you're giving people dialogue and conversations about addiction and substance abuse and everything and anything that has to do with your mental well-being. Mental health is very, very important. I don't think there's no physical or spiritual health. How can there be if your mental isn't right? So I guess uh, Search and Kyle, what, got, what has me here is uh, like um, Kyle said, uh, four years ago now, I put out a book called 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide. You know, they, they wanted the, the story of Run DMC and Jam Master J, but y'all got all of that. Most of, the, most of the world has that already because Serge, Kyle, y'all grew up with us. So there's nothing that y'all don't know. But everybody was so busy focused on the mighty king of rock. I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. Sucker MCs should call me sire. To form my kingdom, you must choose fire. I won't stop rocking till I retire. The devastating mic control. You know what I'm saying? The dude with the glasses. I wrote the book because it's a funny story. For 10 years run, Reverend Run, as he is known now, had a successful reality TV show. Ten-year run, very successful, very popular. So the first season of that, they waiting for DMC to come on. So I don't show up the whole season. You know, it's run show. Second season, DMC don't show up. Third season, DMC don't show up. So now you got all of this stuff. Oh, run and D got to be a Russell and run jerk D. I like just crazy things. You know how social media gets, right? So. In the fourth year, fifth year, as I started going around, I would always get this question. Yo, D, why you ain't on Run's house? Why you ain't on Run's house? I mean, everywhere. City, California, Cleveland. Uh, I went to South Sudan. I went to Russia. So I would always get that question. And then, as you know, people waited for, yo, we got to beef, you know, F that dude, whatever, whatever. But I would say, yo, I wasn't on, on Run's house because I just got out of rehab. Or I would say I wasn't on Run House because 
I was in therapy. And then all of a sudden, their whole perception would change. And it, and it, it would get very secretive. Can you say that again? And I was be like, yeah, man, I was drinking a case of old English a day. Not one in two forties, you know, searching the hood. You get celebrated who drinks the most 40s or who smokes the most weed or who has the most girls or who has the most sneakers. So, and that's not normal behavior, but then as the 90s and the 2000s came on and went from Bacardi and Cokes and screwdrivers and fuzzy navels, which is each snaps with orange juice and vodka, in the 90s and the 2000s, you got this thing called Cavassier and Remy Martin. You know what I'm saying? And um, or on a, the high side, the dark, angry lookers, Jack Daniels and Jim B. So I explained to people that when they didn't see me, the reason why they didn't see me, because in addition to being the mighty king of rock, the devastating mind controller, I was an alcoholic, suicidal, metaphysical, spiritual wreck who was thinking of killing herself. And that would be like, what, what? You know, and I would go on and tell people, yeah, I went to rehab in um, Arizona. And what was good about the rehab in Arizona, this place didn't just clean me up and throw me back out in the world. They made me stay there and I had to take classes on dopamine, classes on how the brain works. They, they taught me all the reasons why your body reacts to these substances. But in addition to that, my first day in there, they put the 10 characteristics of an addictive personality on a blackboard, and I was eight of them. And I think that was my first victory. You know, my therapist was like, that's so good that you said that, because that was me admitting something was wrong. But let's go back to when I'm explaining it to the people. So I would tell people my story. The reason why I wasn't on Rock's house because I was in rehab and I'm, I'm in therapy right now. I was taking a killing myself, but right now I'm okay. And every time, nine times out of, no, 10 times out of 10 times, people would do this. They would look around and go use these words. I've never told anybody this before, but me too. And if they didn't say me too, they would say, I've never told anybody this before, but my mother, my cousin, my sister, my brother, my friend, and the whole list went on and on and on. So the book came about because I got tired of answering the question, why you ain't on this house? Me and run are fine. The reason why there's no run DMC going on right now, if you can bring Jay back from heaven, then you'll get some Run DMC. But until that happens, you know, you might see me in run at a show or or, um, or a festival or something, or if it's a special occasion, but there's no, that's just Rev Run and King DMC together, you know, bringing back memories. There's no Run DMC without Jam Master J. And people get real mad about that. And I say, okay, if you want Run DMC to happen, that'll happen when the Beatles get back together. When George Harrison and John Lennon come back and join Ringo, that's what would happen. And once people saw me after my rehab and therapy, they was taken aback of how open I was about talking about it. And the reason why I'm so open talking about it, my whole career in Run DMC, I've always told you about the good things going on. And it was very powerful. Like you said, search at the beginning of this. DMC, been a place to be. Y'all go to St. John's University. And since Kenny Garden, I acquired the knowledge. After 12th grade, I went straight to college. Just by me saying those rhymes, 
the young kids in my neighborhood at the time, you know, I was still Daryl, but it was like, yo, Daryl, you go to St. John's University? So some of them kids, just by receiving that information or message or hearing those statements, decided to go get GEDs or get to high school diplomas and go to college. Um, I've always talked about family my whole career. Son of Byford, brother of Al. Banners my mother and runs my pal. It's McDaniels, not McDonald's. These rhymes are Daryl's, those burgers are Ronald's. I ran down my family tree, my mother, my father, my brother, and me. And people say, yo, Byford and Banner. And they saw that family, you know, from those two things all the way to Christmas time in Hollis, Queens, mom's cooking chicken. So I was always that kid talking about the normal everyday things that I don't care if you live in Compton and I don't care if you live in Beverly Hills. You can relate to those two things. So as I was sharing my addiction and substance abuse journey and my recovery and my therapy and my rehab, I noticed it was having a huge impact on people, but not just only because it was DMC, it was DMC, who's really just Daryl McDaniels, no different from anybody else. Hearing somebody finally admit something that they've been struggling with, they've been confused about, they um, was ashamed about, they felt guilty about, or hearing somebody talk about something people they knew was going through. And once I went to therapy and rehab, it, it, it enlightened me because I was able to go back and see where the behavior started. It started with being in the hood and drinking those 40s. And it's funny, my alcoholism started when, when we was like, you know, 10 and 12 years old for smoking weed. I realized I didn't like weed that much because weed made you forgetful. It puts you in this like, you know, it, it relaxed you, but it puts you in like this stupor, and stuff like that. And it also gave me more anxiety. Like, I got scared when I was smoking weed. I was very, research, I was very uncomfortable smoking weed because I was very uncomfortable in life already. But prior to me changing the perfect person that I am without any assistance from any substance, prior to that, all I needed to have confidence, to not care what people thought about me, was comic book. Comic books was a very emotional, spiritual thing for me because me growing up in Hollis, Queens, I went to Catholic school my whole life. I wore glasses and I, I read comic books. So I got teased, bullied, and picked on. So growing up, my reality, my truth, my real world was I needed an escape from it. And, you know, I'm too little. I started reading comic books in kindergarten when I couldn't even read and became a good reader in first grade so I could understand what the hell he was saying in the comic book. But in the comic books, it was the only time that I saw smart people who was powerful. Like I wasn't in a gang, I wasn't a thug, I didn't rob houses, I didn't steal and play hooky and all of that stuff. So I really didn't fit in. The only other person growing up with me um, in, in St. Pascal Bela Elementary School that I could relate to was Craig Henry. He was another kid that read comic books and I looked up to him because he could draw better. But long story short, the only thing that made me realize I'm okay as I am was these comic books. When I saw Tony Starks, when I saw Peter Parker, I didn't feel alone in this world. But without my comic books trying to adjust in the street, I had all this anxiety, I was nervous. 
you know, you had all these worries about getting your money taken and rough, so it, it was complicated. But I remember when I first smoked the weed, it took me away from it. But then I got scared later on, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it made me feel very nervous and it had all of this anxiety. So, well, the weed was the first thing that I smoked. And then about a couple of days later, this guy named Dexter Miller, he was 15, we was 12. He introduced us to um, Budweiser. It was in the brown bottles. It was Budweiser. When I was growing up, um, before I knew English, it was um, it was Cold 45, was dominant, and it was Budweiser, it was Schaefer, and it was these other beers called Ballantyne. But the, old, the aunts, the fathers and mothers and uncles drank that. But he introduced me to Budweiser. And what was significant about Budweiser was the first time I took alcohol. When I took this alcohol, it made me feel like the Hulk. You know what I'm saying? I was a cover. I have no fear in me. So I was like, yo, I like how that makes me feel. So I started being a kid in the crew that uh, when it was time to throw in a dollar for the uh, tray bag, they would get mad at me because they would only have $2 because I'm taking my 85 cents. That's how much a quart costs back then. I'm buying, I'm, I'm buying a quarter beer. So for me, it was beer, 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 beer. And it, it wasn't abusive then. It was just my preference. So long story short, this thing called Old English comes to every hood in America. Now it's over because two sips of that you know what I'm saying? I, 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 I'm a world breaker hope now. That was my life as a kid growing up. I didn't like the weed, but I would use the alcohol to make me fit in, to give myself the perception that I'm okay now, people are gonna like me, I can fit in, and I'm just like everybody else, not knowing I was perfect without that. But long story short, all English comes into town, and this thing called hip hop comes into town. And for me, hip-hop was like, yo, you can tell stories about who you are over music? So for me, I was like, I'm, I'm going to tell comic book stories about being the most powerful entity in the hip-hop universe. Now, this, this is without being high. And I just started writing these rhymes about who Daryl was. And that was just for me alone to hear in my room, in my basement, in my escape, in my other dimension. But every day as this little kid, I realized I got to go outside in the real world. So in order to fit in, started drinking more of those quarts. And eventually those quarts, um, whatever was going on with the powers that be and, and the marketing and the promotion of this particular, it wasn't beer anymore, it was more liquor. And it was something about it that was more alcoholic content. There's a whole study that I think the New York Times did a while back in like the late 80s, but old English now introduced this thing called the 40 ounce. Instead of me buying a quart, I'm gonna get more alcohol. I'm gonna get more hope power in the system. So it went from the quarts to the 40 ounces. So that being said, 40 ounces come in, this thing called hip hop comes in, I'm writing all these rhymes and, you know, to go out my front door and just to make it through the day in my neighborhood, I was drinking all these 40 ounces. So that being said, long story short, Run found out that I could rhyme. He put me in the group, put out a couple of records. You know what I'm saying? So now, and it is a true story. So now we're starting to do shows with our first record. It's like that sucker in seats.
So Run, people don't know, was already a professional MC. Rap. He wasn't a rapper. Wasn't rapping. He was MC. He was the son of Curtis Blow. So when it was in school, Curtis Blow during the summertime would bring Run to do all these shows. He would perform with Africa Bambada and Zulu Nation, the legendary DJ Hollywood, the Crash Crew, Treacherous Three, and Run would come back with all these tapes and stuff like that. So Run was already already a professional. By the time we made it's like that in Sucker Seas. And Joe is noticing that my rhymes are like really dope. So he's just thinking I'm a dope MC, but he don't know I'm pretending to be the most powerful entity in the hip hop universe. And the reason why I keep saying that, I didn't need intoxication for my confidence and for my presence in this world. All I needed was imagination. But I started replacing imagination with intoxication to get me through, to cope, to deal with these emotions and feelings that I didn't know it was cool to go deal with now, talk about it, just people that help you, but I didn't know none of that because this was like 1983. So Ron finds out I got all these rhymes and he's he's the profession. I would always tell him, F that, you the son of Curtis Bowe, you be doing it, you this, but Ron's looking at my creativity. He's telling me, D, you go out there and start the shows. You go out there and start the shows. And I studied Cold Crush, I studied Modi, I studied um, the Zulu Nation. You know, I was that kid that studied, I didn't like recorded hip hop. I loved the tapes. I loved Melly Mel and them before they made the message. When they did show, um, listen to this, listen to this. When they had routines and Melly Mel is like the baddest MC ever. Like people, people talk about me and run Melly Mel and them cats. Melly Mel was like, we call them Flash. Here to rock your ass. So Joe knew I knew all of this. So he was like, you go out there, go out there and start the show. So to go out there and start the shows, I would go take some squigs at Old English because I would have the confidence. It actually started when we played um, The Rocks. He pushed me out on stage and I turned around, see the whole Zulu Nation. Say, what's the name of this nation? Zulu, Zulu. I'm standing there, I'm pissy off for the old English. I'm not shitty drunk, I'm pissy drunk. It's a, it's a difference. So I see the crowd, and the first thing that pops in my head was those old school tapes of the Sure Shot Crew starring DJ Cool Cuts, Cool C, Sugar Bear, and the three MCs that'll rock you on down, down, down to your knees. My man Bill Blast, Fuka Sean C, Fuka Raheem. This is before Raheem was in the first five. And they would go, New York, are you ready? So I just started going, one, two, three, in the place to be. I was just, as it is plain to see. I pointed to Joe off stage. He is DJ Run. And I said, I am DMC. And Jay's my man. Rest in peace. Jay takes big beat and starts going, boom, boom, bet, boom, boom, bet. And I go, he is DJ Jam Master Jay inside the So make a long story short, that went over good. I was like, yo, I said, I got to do that every time before a show. So eventually what I'm trying to say is that's how it started. It went from a couple of sips before stage to the whole 40. Then it went to three 40s and four 40s. And then once we started getting money, I'm not waiting. I'm not stopping my car to go into the deli. I'm just going to the deli and buy a case of beer and put it in the back of the truck. 
So, and I didn't know that was not good behavior. Everybody was saluting me, Dietrich, 1240s and this and that. Not knowing it's actually destroying me. So make a long story short, that's during the daytime. Hold up. That's during the daytime. At nighttime, it's time to go out to danceteria in the world and go to the fever and go to the Roxy. So when you go out to there, it's time to drink the alcohol, alcohol. So that was my existence that nobody saw. And um, the majority of the time during most of the shows, it was I was never, I was a functional drunk. So let's fast forward to, that's what was going on. It wasn't, it was out of hand. Let me admit that. It's out of hand because people say, yo, you bug it. Dougie Fresh told me one time, <laughs> one time it was like 1980, he was hanging in the dressing room with us. We used to either have the Apollo or what was the theater on 14th Street? The Palladium. I think it was Palladium. So Dougie Fresh said he was just in the, in the dressing room with me. And it was cool. Everybody's normal. You know, running Jay smoked more weed than God could probably grow in his green earth. So that was their thing. But it was like, yo, I watched you drink like like 440s in front of me. And right before you went on stage, Doug told me this about three weeks ago. He said, I finished off a 40 and I picked the cold 40 up out the case and I just threw it at the wall. He said it was the craziest thing ever. That was my life up throughout that time. So then what had happened was when it got around, I would say after Tough and Leather, we put out this flop album called Back From Hell. And that time, it was a transition within the dynamics of the group, too. First of all, Jay was the fly guy in the group. And Jay was the guy, he was connected to whatever's going to happen the next second, Jay was that guy. If you ever look at Jay throughout the group, he had the braids, he had the different styles and stuff like that. He brought those changes into the groups that everybody hated. Why were you see Jay said, he brought New Jack Swing into us, you know what I'm saying? And for me, it got to a point where I knew something was wrong. I didn't like what was going on um, within the dynamic of the Run DMC, because before it was just, we do this. We decide what we're going to make. He says what he says. One says what he says. And we put it together. Then it got to the point where after the success of Raising Hell, before it was, I make a song, it's a hit. I make a song, we make some money. I make a song, we get on the radio. People outside of me who were seeing those results would be like, yo, you need to have a hit record. You need to sell records. You need to make money. You need to be be on the radio. I didn't know at that time, I didn't need none of that shit. All I need to do is feel good about who I am and be happy and my world will be perfect. So a lot of those pressures got on me too because there was a lot of stuff that happened creatively. There was a lot of stuff that happened organically with the group. I would never speak up. Like when Jay would do something to piss me off, when Ron would do something to piss me off, when the label would do something, when Russ would do something to piss me off, there was just something in me that said, don't be the troublemaker, D, go along with it. But that's not how I really felt. So what did I do? I grabbed a 40. And I was drinking it away. So that was happening around the time of Back From Hell. The records flopping. Jay started JMJ Records. Run had like 80 kids. No, I think he had three of the five kids that he had right now. So me, I'm just running around hanging with Big Daddy Kane. I'm hanging around with Kooji Rap. I'm hanging around with um, um, leaders of the new school. I'm hanging around with Chuck D. I'm hanging around with everybody 
doing what they was doing inspired by us when we used to do that. And just seeing them in that realm, I used to get mad at LL because people think we was on Def Jam, we was always on Profile Records. I was always mad at LL because if LL had a beef with OD, Def Jam would let him drop a new single out of nowhere. So I had all this creativity in me, but they went, Profile was like, no, you guys are big, you're a big commercial act, you're gonna live off King of Rock. No, you can't flood the market, that whole record industry stuff. I didn't like none of that, but I didn't speak up. So long story short, it was probably the back from hell time where all I did was drink. And people don't understand, Run and Jay used to fight all the time. Fuck you, motherfucker. Fuck you, no, we're not doing this. Jay, you bugging. And then when Jay started rapping, that was a, Run, fuck you. Because everybody knows Run is the guy from Crushwood. Nice guys are reverent, but he's that dude. So Run will speak a fucking curse. Russell out, curse, you know, curse everybody out. And, and that was good. That was healthy. Jay cursed back. Even when they was friends play ball, they fight, fuck you, fuck you. Every time something went, I want to speak up. I went, let me just drink the 40. Now, I didn't know what I was doing. That's just what I would do. So this fast forward from 1990. So that was me. While Jay was doing JMJ Records and Run was starting this big family that was about to go on TV, I was lost in limbo, not knowing. See, I didn't know none of this later until I went to rehab. He said, D, you should have cursed all the motherfuckers out, quit the group and went solo and you would have been happy. But I would say, I don't want to be a troublemaker and I don't want to be. He said, that was your problem. He said, the motherfuckers did what they wanted to do. The motherfuckers expressed their feelings. You didn't express yours. And that's important later. So let's fast forward to um, 93, from back from hell. Now, you got to understand, during this time, we still celebrated. We still loved. We still um, worshiped. We wasn't participating. No shows, no money, no videos, no tour. But we still show up here and there because we the mighty run DMC. Oh, so let me forget in 91 before we get to 93. So in 1991, after that back from hell year in 1990, I was drinking so much, I got diagnosed with acute pancreatitis. This is all in my book, 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide. So let me speed up a little. So in 1990, 91, I went to the hospital with the worst stomach ache ever that hurt. When I breathed, it hurt so bad. So I go into the emergency room and the doctor's asking me all these questions. Do you drink? Yes, I drink. How much do you drink? One or two cans, one or three or four drinks a day, four, four, four glasses of wine? No. I drink 40 ounces. Okay, how many 40s do you drink a week? One or two. I drink a case a day. What? You should have seen that. Literally a case a day. And the doctor was like, yo, admit this man. Put him on an IV. So for one whole month, a month and a half, I was in a hospital getting everything intravenously because I couldn't take nothing orally. So fast forward. I get released from the hospital in 91. The doctor looks at me and he says, son, you have two choices in life moving forward. You cannot drink and live or you can drink and die. So from 91 to like 94, not cold turkey, but it was easy. I wasn't drinking and it went good because you know why? In 93, we decide, and this is crazy. The first three albums flow, Run DMC, King of Rock, Raising Hell, phenomenal. Tougher Than Leather made it in there because Jay didn't bring um, New Jack Swing people in. He brought the incredible Davey DMX to produce. So we put out Run's House and we had some bangers on there and Beast of the Rhyme. So that was the stuff. That, and if you hear me on those records, I sound 
enthused. I, and and was no drinking, was no weed. I came in late my verses and then went out drunk. So now in 1993, we start working on this album called Down With The King. And we start working with um, um, Q-Tip produced, uh, Naughty By Nature, KG and I'm produced. Uh, Sam Seva produced, big shout out to Sam Seva. So Eric Sermon at EPMB. So everybody that said we're who we are because Run DMC was producing us. And then the last record on that album was produced by, it hates when I say this, the incredible Pete Rock. And Down With The King did for Run DMC what people say Walk This Way did for Aerosmith. It brought us back. It brought us back. Hands down, Down With The King, the video and that single brought us back. So now we back on the road, we back on MTV with a video, we back on the radio, we back on the charts, and we back on the road touring. So now, in the 80s, we was getting the 80s payday. Now we get the 90s payday, because, you know, inflation, the acts go up. So, Down With The King comes out, it's successful. And I remember, we shot the video in Harlem at a church, and everybody showed up. Everybody showed up, loved everybody. Thank you all for showing, it was beautiful. And the next day we were supposed to go on the road. That night I went home and something in me said, I don't want to live no more. Didn't know what it was. Something in me just said, I don't want to, what the hell's going on? And I just had this void in me. And I didn't know what it was. And I went, I sat there and I went through my whole life. Byford's my father, Banner's my mother. Runs my pal, Jay's my friend. We made one record, two records. We did the first album, went gold, first album, double platinum. Raising Hell goes triple platinum. Now we got all the... So from like 93 to like 96, I was um, emotionally, mentally, physically torn down. Now remember, I'm not drinking because I remember the doctor said, you have two choices in life. You can drink and die or you cannot drink and you live. And it's funny, y'all, Kyle, and search. if you ever saw the old Little Rascal shows, the old was stanky and lying and said, there was one episode where there, there was this um, Little Rascal who wasn't um, a current guy, but it was about him learning the poem. And the teacher kicked him out to school and he went and sat by the tree to lay. And every time you would see him, it would be this thing go, learn that poem. Learn that poem. So make a long story short, at the end of it, you learn the poem. So every time, and now you understand, I'm on a road with Down With The King. We kill him. We open him for Naughty. We open him for um, um, ZZ Top. We going over to Russia. We open him for Marilyn Manson. Oh, yo, it was crazy. We, we opened him for Limp Bizkit. We opened him for Dr. Dre and I'm on a chronic tour. And the money's like pouring in, you know what I'm saying? So you would think life would be good. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm thinking every day I want to kill myself, I want to kill myself. So eventually, around 96, 
I say, I'm going to kill myself. But before I go, and this is what led to the 10 Ways book, but this set up my first book. Before I leave, I want people to know Daryl. Everybody's talking about the King of Rock, this DMC. I want people to know Daryl. So I said, before I die, I want to leave this book so people could know who Daryl was. And in the book, I wanted to say, yo, what's up, world? I'm DMC, you know me, from the groundbreaking rap group Run DMC. First to go gold, first to go platinum, first on the cover Rolling Stone, first with the sneaker deals. Everything that hip hop is doing, they say it's because of me running Jay. But I'm really just Daryl McDaniels um, from Hollis Queens, New York. No different from anybody else on the face of the earth. I was born May 31st, 1964. And when I got to that identifying part about me, I said, I know my birthday, but I don't know um, the details about it. So just to make it more interesting for the reader, here we go. I said, I'm going to call my mother up. I want to know three things. Call my mom's up. Mom, how much do I weigh? What hospital? What time I was born? She tells me those three things. I love you, son. I love you too, mom. Bye. I'm up the phone. An hour goes by. She calls back with my father. Son, we have something else to tell you. Okay, what is it? So I thought it was going to be something, you know, nostalgic, like, oh, when we was giving birth to you, there was a power outage, and we gave birth to you by candlelight in the hospital. No, they didn't hit me like this. They hit me with this. You was a month old when we brought you home, and you're adopted. But we love you. Bye. Click. Yeah, completely destroyed. So I'm already an emotional, what's this void in me, this and that, dude. Gone. So as soon as I found that out, shit hit the fan. My voice just leaves. Runs away. <laughs> out of here. I go into this anxiety pit, pity feel. What the hell? I'm not by for the banner. It was the worst thing. Now I'm going to really kill myself. And something in me just said, go meet Jack and go hang with Jim. So I found out that I was adopted at the age 35 during the comeback, the rebirth of my career. I got hit with all these emotional, mental, identity, personal issues and didn't know how to deal with it. And it just became Jack Daniels and Jim being full time. I'm talking about I stopped eating Everybody knows my manager and my DMC's manager, Eric Lamaville. My wife is telling me, motherfucker, you blow, you, you kill it. I, I actually found the way psychologically to kill myself without drinking the poison, without shooting myself, and without jumping. Oh, let me go do the thing that the doctor told me not to do. I started doing that. I didn't want to feel the void anymore. So I'm calling myself filling the void with, the, with Jack Daniels and Jim B. I'm talking about no chaser like it's the 40, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But I was a functional drunk, but everybody around me knew it wasn't good behavior. You know, D stopped drinking, you know, I was going to like, but the, the funny thing about it was I was able to survive because uh, my voice had left. So thank God Jay was still alive. I mean, I don't want him to be dead, but we were still doing the show, so that was helping me pay the bills, but I was just going through the motions. And imagine being up on stage, not able to do anything. We used the vocals, we used Jay Overdub. I'm, look, I just found out that I was adopted. I'm an alcoholic, suicide, a metaphysical wreck who wants to kill itself. They just found out it is adopted. But now 
I'm in real time every day, not able to do the thing that I want to do so bad. And I'm torn. we go in the rut. Imagine how I felt. I felt over. So it hit the fan in um, 2000. So from 96 to 2000, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I didn't even care. All English was played out now. Jack Daniels and Jim Bean. And here's the saving moment. DJ Hurricane calls me up. Yo, D, I'm performing the New Year's Eve party at the um, at the um, Planet Hollywood or one of those places. You want to come? I'll pay you. Hell yeah, I want to go to Vegas because I can drink. I'll get you a suite. Yes, give me the suite. What do you want? Everything in my dressing room. And, and it's funny, my wife was the only one that was telling me. No, my wife and Eric and Kathy and Leo Cohen, big shout out to them. They were the only ones telling me, motherfucker, you gonna kill me. You shouldn't be drinking. I wasn't gonna listen to them. I was only listening to people that said, yo, D, come, I hung out, rest in peace. I hung out with DMX. That motherfucker gave me Remy, what's Remy Martin and all of that. Now he didn't know I was supposed to be drinking. So I'm hanging out with DMX and he's feeding me, you know what I'm saying, alcohol. To make a long story short, I'm in um I'm in Vegas and um I perform a hurricane, I go back up to the suite, and I'm sitting there with a fifth of uh Remy Martin and I drank it all and I sat it down and I just looked at it and something in me said, yo, D. You really don't want to kill yourself, do you? No, <laughs> but that's what you're doing. You, you, you're killing yourself. Let's say, I know, you know, maybe I'll just die and people will find me in my room and the, the void and the pain and all of that shit will be gone. And it was like, nah, D, you got to go get help. Eric, your wife, and Leo, and everybody's right. You got to go get help. So in 2000, something in me made me say, yo, I gotta go get help. So I went home, told my wife, I'm gonna go into rehab. In uh, March of 2000, I went to this place called Sierra Tucson in Arizona. And I was supposed to be in from March 1st, I was supposed to be in 30 days to March 30th. In February, I stopped drinking. I just stopped because I'm such a neat freak. I said, I don't want to wait till the day before I go into rehab. And my, my, my therapist said, that's some powerful shit you just did. Since I knew I was going to March 1st, I was like, it's no fun if I got to stop. So I just stopped drinking February. The beautiful thing is I could have not went to rehab. I probably started drinking again. But I guess it gave myself a destination or I gave myself an ultimatum. Oh, fuck it, I'm going to stop drinking now. Because that's the type of guy, because I got to stop drinking anyway. And I was able to do it, but I didn't know what I was doing. To make a long story short, I go to Sierra Tucson on March 30th. And when I get into Sierra Tucson, they bring me into the intake room. And in the intake room, you got to hear the story. In the intake room, there's the guy with the number two air conditioning company in the world. The CEO, he's over there in a straight jacket, just out. His family did an intervention. And then I'm in the middle band, the guy on the right of me, he was just out or whatever. So the doctor comes and says, I'll just start with you. And he sits down and he got his boy says, when was your last drink? That was like a month ago. And he looks at me, huh? And I go, well, since I knew I was coming here and I got to stop drinking. And he thought it was the funniest shit ever. I stopped drinking a month ago because I didn't want to wait till last night to stop because I know it was good. 
He said, that's crazy. He said, you don't need to be in here. Go see that lady. So here, real quick, I went to the lady. What was beautiful about Sierra Tucson, they gave me classes. I had to complete nine assignments by the time the 30 days. I had to write all of these essays. I had to complete all of it. It was like college. So I learned about dopamine, this and that, boom, bang. So while I was in therapy, um, I went through all these classes. I learned about the guy that invented LSD. He said some powerful stuff that even the mystics and the religious people and the spiritual people said. He said, we abuse all of these substances and get high because it's a human's conscious search for God. And I was like, wow, that blows me away. Um, I, I finished all my classes. I was supposed to finish them in 30 days. I finished mine in one week. So now I go to the next level. And this is where we can start talking. I go sit down with the next guy and he comes in and um, he's a white guy. I was 35, he probably was like maybe 46, nine or 10 years old. So he comes in, he got the white doctor's cloak on, he got the clipboard, he got the glasses on. Well, he kind of looked like a heavier Frank Zappa, if I had to describe him. So he comes in and sits down and he says, Daryl, during your career with Run DMC, did Run J or Russell or anybody at the label ever do anything to make you upset? And I was super like, nah. And he looks up, he says, oh, this is in my book. He says, oh, puts the clipboard down. He takes his glasses off. Then he stands up and he starts unbuttoning his white cloak. I'm like, what the fuck, this motherfucker with glasses up? And he takes, this is cool. He takes it off. He got an ACDC shirt on. And then he sits down with me, and I guess he wanted to connect with me. And he looks in here in my eyes, and he says, you a goddamn motherfucking liar. Yeah, 1983, we're running to this. And I, yo, all of this just started pouring out of me, this and that, boom, bang to me. And I just had to let it all go. And I didn't want to do, I didn't want back from hell. I didn't want to rob it by having a nine millimeter. I really got one and Jay had me saying curses. And he had Randy Allen and Hurricane and everybody was saying he was gangster rapping and stuff like that. I mean, you know, the Avenue was cool, I think. But Avenue Rhyme was one of my best rap. Like all of this shit came out of me and stuff like that. He said, son, you've been diagnosed with suppressed emotions. We're not saying you wasn't gonna fall into the catechism of depression, but you have the ability to pull yourself out of it 30 years ago, but you were suppressing your emotions with the alcohol. That's what she was doing. Even when, you know, then we got in it when I was a little kid, he said, you was drinking a beer to fit in and to, to be cool and stuff like that. And he said, you didn't need none of that stuff. He said, and when it hit his peak in, 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 around that back from hell time, you should have stood up in the meeting and told running Jay, I quit. And Russell and everybody would have said, probably, and he told me, he said, they would have probably said, yo D, you want to leave all this money on the table? And he said, you just look at them Life would have figured it out for you. Look at him and say, yup, I'm going home and read my comic books. He said, you would have been all right if you would have just expressed yourself. The argument wouldn't last forever. You would have been just like them and you would have got to where you were supposed to be instead of being where you're not supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So that was my thing. And before they let me go, uh, he says, D, from now on, from now on, for your survival, you express your truth, no matter whose feelings it hurts, no matter what you, he said, if that's how you feel, you let it out. And he said also, but also be careful. When you do that, you gotta be um, respectful and bold enough to sit there and let them 
working out too. But he said, if you do that, you will never have to pick up another drink again. And when I got out of rehab, the simple thing that let me know, wow, I do have this power was, they started calling me. Yo, do Flavor of Love. Yo, do White Rapper. They call me for the show. And not that I have something against it. I just don't want to be on TV. I'm got anxiety. So now, because I was, back in the day, I would have said, okay, how much they pay him? Let me drink and go. Now I just tell Eric, he gets mad at me. D, they're going to give you 15 grand, 20 grand, 50 grand. I go, nope. He goes, why? Because I don't want to do it. I'm not comfortable doing that. That's not what I want to do. I will talk about comic books, you know. And so now I'm able to not fall back into the necessity of needing something different to make me feel other than I am. Unless you admit how you feel, whether good or bad, you never heal. So now I've always told you Christmas time, hey, it's Daryl McDaniels and Byford and stuff like that. Now I'm able to say, nah, man, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, bro. No, I don't want no money today. If you remove guilt and shame, you remove the pain. So I was able to go into rehab, but rehab didn't save me. It was therapy. I discovered therapy in rehab. When was the last time you drank? When exactly? Do you remember the date? Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> um, New Year's Eve, 2000. 2000. So it's been New 21 Year's. years. That's incredible. That's yep. incredible. And you know what I find so fascinating is that you and I come from draft. Well, not New Year's Eve. Um, January. I, went, I stopped drinking February 1st. February 1st. So January 31st. Okay, got it. I'm writing that down. New Year's, okay. Eve, New Year's <laughs> Eve is when I said I got to stop drinking. <laughs> well, so what I was going to say is that I find, you know, we're so drastically different. Obviously, we come from two different worlds, but your my story is so similar to yours. And I think that, you know, you find out yeah. a lot, obviously, in programs and things like that. But what I thought was interesting is that you and I both went to Catholic school um, when I was 14, and I got bullied relentlessly as well because we weren't as rich as everybody else. And we didn't have the Mercedes. We didn't live in the right neighborhood. So I was really, really, really bullied. And um, I found that as soon as I got into ninth grade, that the only thing that would make me feel like I fit in was doing drugs and drinking. Oh, sure. And Yeah. And that's exactly, that's what I did. So I went down that path as well. And it's also interesting that you said you had pancreatitis. I went through the same thing. Wow. It's like the worst pain I've ever felt in my entire life. Yeah. And like, and that's when I knew I had to stop. That was 2006. And wow. I was like, I would be a fool if I got out of the hospital and started, you know, doing what I was doing. Yeah. And so that, that really, 2006 um, I got out of yeah. 2004 wow yeah so it was um it's really interesting that we can uh connect on that level you know being from such drastically different worlds um I was gonna ask one of the things I wrote down when you were speaking was that you never spoke up right uh -huh. you never spoke up look at all the interviews run always spoke yes, I know it's funny well, uh my therapist said it's amazing that if people wanted to know who you was you, mm -hmm. They could just listen to your records. Right. But if people wanted to know how you feel, you never let them know that. Like, no. That's what well, I felt. I'm the body king of rock. No, you just tell the motherfuckers who you are. And it's, it's funny. Well, it, I, well, one thing I just was wondering if maybe uh, being bullied, you know, all that time, like growing up in Catholic school, do you think that that kind of suppressed your voice in a way? Because for me, I know oh, it made me afraid. Yeah. 
Yeah, yes. really yes, speak up. It's funny. Before I was like, before I was um, um, partaking in behavior that wasn't normal, for me, it was like, when Run put me in the group, it was like, now I'm able to be who I am in this, with this, with this hip hop thing. So now the dude that wear glasses, like, you know, I'm not the guy, I'm not going to fight you and I'm not going to punch you for teasing me. But now I'm able to get up on stage and tell all of these motherfuckers the D's for doing it all of the time. M's for the rhymes that are on mine. C's for cool, cool ass can be. And Rumble go, why you wear those glasses? I'm going to go so I can see. I didn't wear them to be fashion. I didn't wear them to be cool. Hip hop made me that, like, hip hop allowed me with the same energy and attitude that, you know, people were mean and aggressive and thugged out and, and, and um, the hard rocks. I said, I'm going to put that with this hip hop thing and I'm going to, everything people think is what's wrong about me. I'm going to use hip hop to, to um, be my, and it worked. It was like, oh shit, that motherfucker around about, but it's because I had the medium of hip hop. But I didn't know that what I was doing on the records could work in my world. See, that was the difference. So it was, it, it, it was, uh, it's funny, I did that on my records, but I wasn't going to do that in real life. Like Bill Adler, our first publicist, he said it was amazing to sit in the dressing room and see Jay over there just fly with the Hollis crew, run, fucking run in his mouth. And he, and he used these words, it's funny, with the superhero thing. My old man and Daryl McDaniels, Bill said I would transform into, I'm the king of rock, there is none higher. So the MC, but after that, I'll go back to this. I didn't know I'm supposed to do what I'm doing on stage in life. See, that was the the, 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 the this discovery. And that's when I started noticing. You know, now when I go, I tell kids, everything that people think is wrong with you is your power. Proclaim that with, you know what I'm saying? Speak that up. But see, now I'm confident enough to do it because I know it's okay. My problem was I didn't know what to do with these feelings that I had. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know it was okay to speak about them. I didn't know where to go. I, know, I was the mighty DMC. I had money. I didn't know I could go get therapy and stuff like that. It took me going to rehab to stop drinking to discover how to get the help. You know, so the, the, the bullying and, and, and everything was, was a, um, a catalyst but it was, it, was, it was a catalyst to keep me somewhere because what I was doing with my imagination, I wasn't doing in my real life. No, it was basically, you know, punch somebody in the face by telling them my truth. Now, fuck that. I don't want to do that. I never did that. It's okay. And you got to understand, when I found out that I was adopted, there was a whole bunch of emotions and stuff there. There's a book called The Primal Wound that says, when we're, when we're our birth mothers, nine months, when we're given away, there's a book called The Primal Wound. I think the author, the lady's last name starts with a V. When we're giving away something in us, says, what are you doing? Where are you going? Who are these people? But we're too little with a spirit. So when I was a little kid, when I was growing up, there was always something in me. My mother said, my brother's side of the room was a mess. Like he's going to be there. When I was a little kid, something made me always stay neat, like I'm going to be moved again. So also my fear with Ron and Jay was, I want to be liked. 
when I was a little baby, somebody took me away from my origination. And so, something happens within us spiritually, mentally, and physically where we, 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 I became OCD, got to be neat, I got to be in control, I got to be prepared. And the one thing I want to, I'm not going to argue with Ren and Jay, I want to stay with this family. So there was a lot of psychological stuff going on with me, but those are the things that I should have been in therapy being allowed to deal with. You know, it's, um, it's funny that my mother and father told me that I was adopted because my brother, Alfred, who's their biological son, said, D, don't you know, don't you know if you never would have spoke up, mom and dad was going to take that secret to the grave with them. Why? Because they were ashamed. So guilt and shame was always around. You know what I'm saying? Right. The whole thing of being somebody else other than you, I was real good at that. Like but therapist said, that's why you created this DMC guy, but not like it. Like everybody else wanted to rap. I had to create something so I could exist. You know, the, uh, the other thing that uh, is interesting about your story, D, is, is I had the exact opposite. You know, when things went south with the group, with me and my old partner, right. I was the guy who spoke up and I was like, nah, you know, fuck him, fuck all of y'all. Y'all don't care about me. Like, you don't care about, like, Leo, you don't give a fuck about me, Russell. You don't give a fuck about me. It's all right. about money. You don't care about who I am. You're going to let this dude disrespect my soon-to-be wife, and you're just going to let that. And then when I walked away from the group, I thought that that was a real healthy thing for me to do. Oh, but, sure. I had worked, but I had worked my whole life to get there. So what happened was... So what happened was when I left it, I was like, wait a minute, what am I doing? Am I making the right decision? Like, why am I like, why am I walking away? So then I started to abuse my relationship with my wife. I started to abuse everything else around me. And psychologically, I started to go into a tailspin where I started to fill the void of what I lost with things that were not healthy, like attitudes that weren't healthy and projecting a lot of things on my wife and making her feel guilt that she didn't deserve to feel, you know, and then I replaced that with, you know, addiction. Um, But the one thing that I love that you shared, and um, I'm hoping that you can kind of summarize it is when you think about other people, and they mm-hmm. hear this and they don't have the depth of scope that you have, because the truth of the matter is, you know, you've worked almost two decades on yourself in a lot of different ways. Right. You've really taken a lot of hard, hard looks at yourself, um, even longer than your rap career actually was. Oh, for sure. So, so when uh, somebody's listening to this and they have a lot of concerns about recovery and they have a lot of re- concerns about therapy and they're like, yo, I don't, I don't know if I have that kind of time. I don't know if I have that mm-hmm. kind of energy. What are some of the things that you can share with someone who's listening to this that can simplify what the process will feel like to someone who really needs help? First of all, you, whatever, whatever step, every, let me say this, every step is an achievement. Even the many steps or the one or two steps that comes with failure, every step is achievement. That's how the journey works. So a lot of times people tend to give up. 
If you fall off the wagon, just get right back on. It's better that you get on it. It's better that you falling off the wagon and getting back on and live a long life than fall off the wagon and don't get to live life at all. I tell people, yo, every little bit counts. But here, here's, here's to simplify it. It's not that simple, but this is how I simplified it. When I was in rehab, and um, I was in there with uh, sex addicts, alcoholics, anorexics, OCD people. I mean, the one lady, she got checked in. She had to take the toothbrush and clean all the, um, the tile in her bathroom. And it was like, let her do it. It was like, let, don't stop her. Let her do it. When we were standing in the group thing, we were supposed to hands. She's standing like that. But she would stand there. And it was cool. But what had happened to me was this. It was, it was a revelation. And, and this isn't simple for somebody, but I want them to understand that the victory lies within. I'm sitting there and I'm hearing everybody recite the 12-step um, thing. So I'm sitting there, you know, I'm, it's a new experience for me. So I'm like, oh, this is some comic book stuff from Star Wars or whatever. So I'm still, I'm, in my whole life since I was a kid, I've always made believe. And everything that I made believe that was um, um, exciting and good and gentle and sincere to me became the biggest things ever. So they just said this. They were saying, they said, I talk about this in my book. They said, my, I depend in times of rough, I depend on my higher power, my higher power. I had to look at my higher power. So I'm sitting one day and I'm like, my higher power, my father, stop. My higher power, my higher, that means the, the, my higher power ain't out there. If it's, my, if it's my higher power, then it's mine. Yeah, it's inside. I have it. Oh, mm -hmm. so here's what worked for me. I said, it's my higher With the same intensity, with the same intensity, and I notice it feels the same. With the same intensity that I want to take that drink. And remember, prior to um, prior to when, when I came out of rehab, um, when I got out of rehab in 2004, this, those first eight years, they give you the mini barking. So Eric and everybody was always afraid. And there, there was times when I got to read, I would go and I would look at the mini bar just to look at it. But I wouldn't take the drink. Why? With the same intensity and desire, the same intensity and desire that I want to take that drink, this feeling I got, I want to take that drink. I use that to not take the drink. Mm -hmm. And it negates it. <laughs> but you have to practice that and realize uh, the fiending thing that you wanted. It's just energy. It's where you yeah. put it. Mm -hmm. but, but more importantly, it's okay to fail. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to flop. You can call me KG. Or call me the all. I might slip, trip, or stagger, but I won't fall because I'm steady as a rock and sharp as a tack. And if you give me trouble, I just shove it right back. And that's that's what that rhyme is about. You get, yep. you, you might yep. slip, trip, or stagger, 
Do not be ashamed. If you remove yes. guilt and shame, you remove the pain. It's okay to be fucking up. Speaking of being, shame. And that being said, you're not the only one. Like, I thought I was the only one feeling like this when I went to rehab and saw all the other people. As I go around and talk about 99.9% of the people are struggling with some mental health issues, and a lot of them are fronting. But to simplify it, your journey was different. Kyle, we got some things similar. Everybody's journeys are different, but it's the same thing. Right. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to be in that position. That's the yeah. first thing that they should know. It's okay to fucking want meth. It's okay to want coke. It's okay to want to get. It's okay. Once you admit that, that's part of it. Once you say, yes, I need help. Mm-hmm. But you got to get to that point. So every step, because, you know, a lot of people say, I'm going to get straight and they're sober for three days, but they don't really feel it. They don't right. really feel it. Right. It doesn't. I'd rather somebody struggle back and forth and live to get to a point where they can overcome it than not want commit, commit, to commit to suicide. Facts. I, I wanted to ask a little bit about therapy, too, because, you know, you spoke a lot about being the king of rock and almost like when you stepped on stage, it was like you had a mask on. It was like the superpower that you had. I was wondering, um, did you have to break down some stigmas around therapy, like even getting therapy? Because you're supposed to be this like tough rapper. Oh, dude. Yes. And, you know, like, was that difficult to kind of get through? Well, not not really, because because, like I said, I got like eight. Um, I got eight characteristics of a person with addictive personalities, but I'm realizing a lot of those characteristics can be used as strength. What I wanted to say earlier is my therapist said, don't you know your whole life you was always proclaiming what you are? Um, Sergeant Kyle, most of my raps say I am the, I am, I'm the, I'm the microphone master. I'm the king of rock. I'm the son of Piper. I'm DMC. All my rise, um, 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 I'm the son. And when you look at the comic books and stuff like that, it's funny how I was so attracted to those things because I became son of Byford like the son of Thor. I mean, son of Odin. I was sitting there one day and was like, Thor is the son of Odin from Asgard. He got a brother named Loki and he got a hammer. I'm the son of Byford from Hollis. I got a brother named Alfred and I got a mic. So all of those things played into my existence, but I was always pretending who I was to be and everything I pretended to, everything that I made believe I was, I became. Like people call me the king now. It was so king, just, you know, and I didn't see that until I got sober. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know that we, we all have, it's so cliche, we all have that power. Stan Lee, he saved my life. And I didn't know what all these comic books was going to do for me later on. But Stan Lee helped me prepare my career. Because when you, when, you, when you look at life, you got to define who you are. Hip-hop taught me define who you are and then tell the world who you are. Define what you are and then tell the world who you are. For instance, if I say be amazing, you'll say, the amazing DMC. No, Spider-Man. The no, no, no. Oh. Sorry. Oh, For me, I you're, 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 you're the amazing DMC. You're the incredible DMC. That's why. For me, you are my superhero. Exactly. 
So that's why I came in Thor and Spider-Man and the Invincible Iron Man were mine. So I became Daryl McDaniels, my it's no longer Daryl McDaniels when he get on a mic. He transforms into King of Rock. He becomes the devastating mic controller. Yeah. So I was able to say who I was and become that. So with that same thing, I'm able to say, yo, I can't be the guy that doesn't have to drink anymore. You well, know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I also appreciate the opportunity to have gone through something, survived it, so that I can tell my story. My most important advice to anybody struggling, especially people going, you know, with suicide and all of that, you know, what's so, why should I this and that? Because your existence can save a life. Amen. Your story, it's not the MC story, your story, our stories can save. People need to see themselves and others or be able to relate to something else to say, if he can make it, I can make it. Because it's like you said, Kyle, it's the mighty king of gangster hard rock, nonstop hip hop. And it's what they call the top from the rhymes of pop for every race, place, color, country, county, or creed, and all of the places that I am seen. B-boy badness to the highest degree, and there's no hip-hop if it ain't no me. If you're watching TV, be watching 4D, they be clocking DMC like they jocking Jay-Z. You can tell by the rhyme that I'm in my prime, beats to the rhyme when I say this line. So people see that guy, and they go, well, maybe if he can do it, maybe I can do it. And mm -hmm. just by me speaking, a lot of my stories is not directly with people suffering or struggling. They always go, my daughter's at home. My aunt's at home. So guilt and shame is, is, is so powerful because a lot of lives are being lost a lot of opportunities for recovery and therapy and a lot of um, situations to be a sh to be saved that can be saved never get the opportunity because people who are not struggling are ashamed to talk about the mother, the daughter, the aunt and uncle at home. Um, I was at the CD Babies um, two years before the pandemic. I was at CD Babies annual conference. And I was one of the guest speakers. It was Questlove, it was me one night, and you know, all the music people. So on my night, you know, a night with DMC. So I go up there, you know, and I start at, hey, I start, you know, with Sucker MCs, and I'm going through the whole run DMC thing, and they loving it. And then I get to the day, I went to King, and they loving it. So my therapist said, tell your truth. So usually I would end it down with the King and say, run with the TV, but I go into the rehab and the therapy thing. So I tell people I was an alcoholic, suicidal medicine. Now, the whole mood in the room changed. You can hear a pin drop. And I just went through the, the whole story I told y'all. So after the thing, this is funny. After the, my little things, you go in the hallway and uh, DMC could take pictures, sign books, get an autograph. So I was the last week of the night. It was 9.30. We were supposed to be out the building. We were supposed to be out the venue by 11 o'clock so they could, you know, do the, the final day was Sunday. I'm there on a Saturday. 9.30, D and Eric's telling me, D, condensed versions of everything for the meet and greet. We didn't get out of there until 1 a.m. Why? Because all 300 people inside the room I spoke with waited online to come tell me it was about 60 people struggling, and a lot of them were musicians and artists, but a lot of them were 
I'm here for my daughter. He's at home with bipolar. He's at home with alcohol. Thank you for telling me. I'm going to get mm-hmm. your book and I'm going to tell him about you. I'm, um, out of the 300 people, let's say um, 240 of them were all people who knew someone. See, the, per- the person struggling, struggles, falls off the wagon, overdoses, commits suicide, get away because the people around them are ashamed to go tell their worker, at the, my daughter's fucking up. They don't realize if they say that for the whole cafeteria to hear, 80 other people's going to say you too, but they don't. They sit there in misery while the person struggles in this life wastes away. If that person is not one person to speak up. So I'm realizing the, re- the reason why I speak up, every time I speak up, people come out the world. If we remove guilt and shame, we'll remove the pain. A lot of times, um, our, our the things that we do are caused by catalysts. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why the first question my therapist said, D, did Run Jay or Russell ever do anything? To <laughs> You're like, no, not at all. <laughs> of course they did. Of course. So that must have been tough to suppress that all those years. Like I can't imagine not no, being able to. No, it wasn't tough because I had the old English. Well, you what, had old English. But I'm saying, is, looking it, back though, it must no, be like, damn. No, it's tough because it all builds up. Right. So it built, what happened with me was, oh shit, down with the kings of hit. Something's not right. My, my, your, 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 something's not right. You know what I'm yeah. saying? That's why they say it's a simple program for complicated people. And I got to wow. tell you, Daryl, man, I, I can't thank you enough for telling your truth here. You know, you've been a hero of mine. You know, the reason I even have a career is Jam Master J heard me rhyme in, in Grand Wizard Tony D's basement of the Bad and Boys. Brought and brought you to a show. Wow. Brought you to a show. And, um, That's yeah, hip-hop and, history, um, folks. And uh, I'm just so glad also to now be on a a road of recovery with you riding by my side and uh and I, I, mean, I thank you for doing this brother thank you out of everything you took out of everything you know we think we thought our connection was music and hip-hop and beautiful things but our connection the reason why we met in life was so much deeper and this is one of those this is proof of that yeah this is proof whoever disimplified it but you are not alone let me just mm-hmm. tell that person that first. You are yeah. not alone. Yeah. That's one of the best things you can remind people because yeah. we're all going through something. Every single person. Every yeah. single programs person. like this around the world in all sorts of AA, NA, Gamblers Anonymous, Sex Anonymous, you know, all of those types of anonymouses that are here to kind of break that stigma and that's yeah. why we created the breaking anonymity podcast and uh Errol mcdaniels thing. thank you so much thank for telling you. your story and uh you've thank given you us you. a voice you've given us a voice check out new episodes of breaking anonymity every wednesday wherever you listen to your favorite podcast and if you like what you hear please tell your friends and subscribe The Breaking Anonymity Podcast is a timeless podcast company production. Executive produced by Chantel Barron, Brett Epic-Mazur, Kyle Eustace, and Michael Barron. Produced by Kyle Eustace and Michael Barron. Sound design by Brett Epic-Mazur and Nick Davila. Breaking Anonymity logo created by Paul Lukes. Sound effect voiceover by Tembisa Mashaka.
If you are battling with addiction or know someone who is, please call the National Addiction Helpline. 1-800-662-4357. That's 1-800-662-4357. You do not have to battle addiction alone.